Amen. Well, welcome again. It's always such a great day to be here on these Easter Sundays. I always love the kids' sermon. I joke sometimes that I come for the same reason that you do, to hear what I'm going to say. That's especially true when we do the kids' sermon, to hear what I'm going to say, and more so to hear what they're going to say, because you never really know what's about to happen. Well, this morning we are looking at the book of Acts, Acts 17, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 34. And as you could have guessed, our Easter Sunday sermon is going to be focused in a very specific way on the resurrection of Christ. Our typical pattern here at Sunrise, if you're visiting here with us, is to go through books of the Bible. Currently, we're engaged in a study of the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, we're taking a break from that to talk about the preaching of the resurrection as we see in the Apostle Paul here in Acts 17. I'm very excited about looking at this with you. It's such a monumental text. It's a text that has so much significance and theology loaded into it. And really, we're just going to skim the surface and see what God's Word has to say to us today about the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, you might know a little bit about him. He's a figure that we need to know something about from the New Testament. He's a man with an interesting history, and he's a case study of some sorts, He was a young man who was advancing in his field, his chosen field of Judaism. He was a Pharisee. He was doing really well. He came from the right family. He was probably, at the time, relatively wealthy, had every opportunity for advancement in front of him. He was popular. He was smart. He had been trained under an incredible ancient Walked away from all of it. I know many people have gone through a career change at some point in their lives. Maybe you've worked really hard and trained and done a particular thing and you had your life trajectory sort of set and then you pivot for whatever reason. You do an about face. Well, he didn't just do that. He actually went and joined the very team that he was working so hard to destroy. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He was on a mission to destroy the early church, this cult, he considered it, these people who followed Jesus. He did not see that Jesus and the preaching of the resurrection was compatible with what he understood the Old Testament to teach, what we would call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. I guess Paul did not sign his no-compete clause in his contract with the Pharisees and the Christians. So what happened to Paul? What happened? What would so radically take a man who had his career path set, he was working so hard in Judaism, he was advancing, and then all of a sudden he completely changes teams, he gives up all of his income, he gives up his notoriety, he gives it all up, he's not going to get published in the early Jerusalem journals anymore, he's out. And not only that, he has a price on his head and people want to kill him everywhere he goes. What happened to Paul? And we could say the same of many, many early first century Christians. What explains the behavior of these crazy people who would be willing to risk their lives? What happened? The resurrection happened. Of course, today is the day that we focus our minds in a very specific way on the resurrection. And really, every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday for us. It was the first day of the week, as Nathan just read, when they found that Jesus had defeated death, and the true church has gathered on the first day of the week in remembrance of the resurrection. To say it this way, we could say that there is no gospel if there is no resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul plays this out. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, 
He says it this way, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If there is no resurrection, there really is no gospel at all. The argument from the scripture is that the Bible is what we could call falsifiable, the resurrection, the Christianity itself. And what that means is that if Christianity, Christianity would fall apart if the resurrection could be proven to be untrue. I have a graph for you. Now, I did not do this artwork, but it's about my level of artwork. If you've been around a little while, you know that I'm, I'm kind of known for my art, so it's kind of a thing I do. But I found this, um, I found this uh, graphic, and I just thought it was helpful. So if you do a comparison of other religions, world religions, and a comparison with Christianity... What you have in other religions is there's some sort of a private event that happens. So there's a private dream about God, maybe a private angelic encounter, such like the Church of uh, the the Mormons, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Um, Islam is very similar, or there's some kind of private idea about God. And then what happens is it centralizes, one person then goes out and tells everybody else what they've encountered and what they've seen. And you're expected to believe this person as the true prophet of Muhammad, let's say, or the Joseph Smith who is bringing a corrective to all the people in the Book of Mormon. And so that's other religions and how they start. Christianity is fundamentally different in how it's shaped. There was a public ministry. Christ was killed publicly. You'll notice a key word. See if you can pick up on it. A public ministry, Christ was killed publicly. Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. Christ publicly showed himself to the public. That's 1 Corinthians 15. We have a recounting of that. The public told everyone what they saw. And so what we have in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul goes through all this list of witnesses. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to me. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 500. And then he adds an interesting footnote there in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and some of them are asleep, meaning they have died, but some of them are still alive. What was he encouraging them to do? Go ask them. How do you know that Christ has defeated death? Like, well, ask George. He saw him. He, he, he's not hiding himself. And so it's a very, very public event and ordeal. And so the resurrection then, this is why we can make the statement that Christianity is the most falsifiable religion. All you have to do is disprove the resurrection. The problem is, and the good news for us, you can't disprove the resurrection because it actually happened. It explains what happened in the first century. It explains how you take a guy like Paul who was so set on destroying the church and now he's committed his life to building the church. As we move into the book of Acts, we're gonna see Paul's preaching of the resurrection. We'll see three simple points as we walk through this today. Three simple points. The opportunity, the message, and then ultimately the response. And It's a good reminder here. I have a map for you that will remind us that Paul is in Athens. And so if you come straight off of, this is a zoom in, uh, the country that looks like a boot, that one's always easy to find. So that's Italy. If you come straight off the boot, and I don't know how much you can see of that there. 
depends on how good our eyes are. So if you come straight off the boot, uh, you'll, you'll land almost in Athens. And so that's an easy way to figure that out. And so Greece and Athens are right there beside each other. Much which was called Macedonia then is modern day Greece. And so a- Athens sits there sort of on the side of Greece down by the Aegean Sea. Very beautiful place. I'm sure many of you have had an opportunity to travel there over the years. So that's where we are. Paul had been on a number of missionary journeys, and this one lands him here. You'll see his final journey, his fourth missionary journey, as some call it. Uh, It's not a missionary journey per se. He's in chains, and he's on his way to Rome to stand trial on his last journey. So this is where we are in the story. As we see, Paul creates this opportunity really for himself. There are times and places when I think we just sort of wish that somebody would come running up to us and say, what must I do to be saved? But that doesn't happen a lot, does it? A lot of times it's us figuring out ways into the conversation and generating these types of conversations. With Paul, we see exactly what happens. He goes through a walk in the city. He's there just for a layover, it would seem. He's left these other cities, and he's waiting on his friends, and he goes for a stroll around Athens. And as he does that, he is provoked within himself, and he decides to start talking to people about the resurrection and Jesus specifically. I want to read this in portions today so you can see how the story develops. So let's read verses 16 down through 21. So Paul is in Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling stories or hearing something new. Paul had found his people, he found a willing audience to entertain him and to listen to what he has to say. We're told here at the beginning that there's a few different groups, the Jews, the God-fearers, and then the everyday people. And so it's really just, we could pick that apart, and there are unique distinctions between those three groups. But I think really what Luke is communicating is that Paul would talk to anybody who would stop and listen long enough. I hope you've all got that friend in your life that every time you turn around, they're telling somebody else about, the, about Jesus and the resurrection and sharing the gospel. I have friends like that in my life, and I'm inspired by them. Sometimes I feel convicted by them because I'm not bold enough to share the gospel. Paul just certainly seems like that kind of guy. He's just always looking for opportunities, and he finds it. He finds it here. Now, there's two groups here. There's two groups of philosophers Two groups of philosophers. I don't know what kind of history everybody's got with philosophy. I thought at one point in my college life that I might want to study philosophy. I took a philosophy class or two and decided that's probably not what I want to do with my life. But I did find it interesting. After one of our classes, Dr. Mashburn had taught, one of my friends walks out, shakes his head. He said, that man has been too deep too many times. 
I kind of agree. This is the crowd. This is the group. They want to debate. Find yourself on a college campus and you'll find people like this very often. Bring a new idea. Bring something in. Let's argue. Let's sharpen our skills. This is the type of people that he's found. He says there are two groups in particular there. And I think it's fitting and it's meaningful that Luke does mention these two groups. There were the Epicureans. So the Epicureans believed that the gods were real. They just believed they were made of the same type of thing that you are. And so therefore an idol statue, things like that. The gods were material, just like everything else. And they believed in a little bit of a deterministic view of life, similar to what the fatalists believed. And the payoff of their worldview was you really, the gods are, are distant and not connected. So the best thing you can do is to go pursue pleasure. That's the highest good. The good life is you just go be happy. You do you. Be happy. Go pursue your dreams. Whatever makes you happy, whatever feels good, if you want, to, whoever you want to be with, that's what you need to do. That's the good life. The Stoics had some similarities in their worldview, but they took a more fatalistic approach to life. And so the good life to them was to do the right thing, but to do it in a dispassionate sort of way. And we still carry that term over today. Some of you probably have friends or maybe yourself, and, you, and we would call them stoic. You're kind of emotionless. Then that term is carried over from the early stoic philosophers. He singles these two groups out and keep that in mind as we continue to move along. So that was verse, verses 17 these devout persons, and then verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. So he has two accusations thrown at him, two accusations. One is that he has an uninformed worldview. He's a babbler. The other is that he's preaching these unauthorized gods. Now let's talk about this. This term, babbler, or some have translated it seed picker, there's actually another word that fits as well, and some of your translations may use this. It says scavenger. So here's what they're doing. Remember, the philosophy guys, hey, dude, we've thought through everything, and you're bringing this new, unexamined, it's not going to stand up to scrutiny, and so who do you think you are? You're grabbing a bunch of random pieces of information, and you're trying to fit it together, and it's incoherent. That's really their argument against him. You know, growing up in Alabama, one of our great joys in life, if you grew up in rural places like I did, was trying to take pieces and parts of something and make something else work. Many of you have been part of projects like that, or taking something that's really not meant to do this particular job and making it do that job. Remember, it was actually in April um, of 93. Some of you guys may remember the snowstorm that came. I was in North Alabama at the time, and we got about two and a half feet of snow over a period of, you know, uh, I guess about, about 24 hours or so, I believe it was. And let's just say North Alabama ain't ready for that, <laughs> all right? Shut the place down uh, for a few days until it went back to 94, and we were fine um, after that. So my brothers and I, we had all sorts of great ideas. Uh, growing up with a bunch of boys in the house, you typically have awesome ideas when you're teenagers. 
And so one of our ideas was to take the four-wheeler that we had and a knee board and a ski rope and drag each other around um, in the front yard, which was a ton of fun. Um, I think one of us ended up in the trees at some point, um, but everybody came out of that okay. Um, taking random pieces in part, sort of in a, in a Frankenstein sort of way, let's just take this part and stick it together with this part and this part and this part. What Paul is being accused of is you're just grabbing some stuff and sticking it together. Your worldview doesn't make sense. It's incoherent. All right? That's the accusation. We'll see how he addresses that in just a moment. The next one is that you're preaching unauthorized gods. Unauthorized gods. This is really interesting. The gods were actually regulated here in Athens in the first century. The gods were regulated, and you really needed a permit in order to introduce a new god. Now, this, is, uh, this may be something that's um, new, but this is part of the accusation that's coming. A couple of quotes that I'll read for you from uh, early times describing what it was like. In both classical and Hellenistic times, the introduction of foreign cults and rites required official authorization of the state. So if you're going to introduce a new god, you had to go get a permit for that. Anybody in the building industry getting permits? Or anybody ever tried to like, do things where you had to get a building permit? Ask me about that later. We'll, we'll talk. It's hard to get, isn't it? So this is the early permit. You've got to have a permit to do that. Another quote. This was from an ancient source. The king shall fix the boundaries of the sanctuaries. In the future, no one shall found altars, cut the stones, or take out earth or stones without the authorization of the councils and the demos, the the ruling body, uh, the public. So you couldn't just go start talking about a new God. You had to get it cleared with the Athenians first. And so Paul stands up and he starts talking about Jesus and the resurrection. They're like, hang on, we don't know this God. They had a lot of gods, but they didn't know about this God. And so that's part of the accusation. So it's two things. You're uninformed. It's a bunch of random pieces and parts of a worldview. And you have these unauthorized gods. You might be familiar with mythology in the ancient world. There were different names for the gods. There, the Roman and the Greek mythology crosses over. And you have a whole list of gods. I don't have them all here. Just a few to show us because these become important. There's a Roman name and then a Greek name. So Jupiter and Zeus, Neptune, I put that one on there for our Neptune Beach friends here today, Poseidon, the god of the sea, and then Eris and Mars, the god of war. That becomes significant because in just a moment, we're going to see that Paul is taken to the Areopagus. Well, what is that? It's the hill of Ares. That's why it's also called Mars Hill, depending on if you're using the Greek name or the Roman name. Same place. That's what it was. All right, let's move along. So the next thing that we see is that the message that Paul actually preaches here, the message that he preaches. Verse 22, so standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from them every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We'll stop there. In Acts 17, what we see is that Paul actually takes a little bit different approach. In Acts 13, if you've flipped back there, we won't do that for the sake of time this morning, we'll see that what Paul did is he's talking to a group of Jews, and he starts with the Exodus story and says, in the previous times, this is how it worked. He starts with the Old Testament and the Exodus story. But in the story here, in Acts 17, he starts with a common starting point of their religiosity. You know about the gods, and you have this one unknown god. Let me tell you a little bit more about that. Now, I want you to notice something here, and I want you to think through this for our modern world today. We have a lot of people who would say something to this effect. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Has anybody ever heard that, or anybody ever thought that? I'm spiritual, but not religious. In the modern world, I think what we're encouraged to do, or we hear somebody say something sort of nebulous, like, he's a person of faith. The question that triggers in my mind when I hear someone say they are a person of faith is, in what? Faith in what? Faith is only as good as its object that it's placed in. It's only as good as that. And so what Paul does is he doesn't just say, hey, I hear you guys are religious. I'm religious too, Let's sit down and see what we can learn from each other. That is not Paul's approach to evangelism. What he does is he says, you are religious, let me tell you what you're actually looking for. Because these religions, they're not real. They're not real. I think we have versions of this going on today. Some of you may have heard about this term before. It was coined a few years ago by an author who was writing about the modern phenomenon of religion. And he calls what people believe today Sheilaism. You heard of this? Sheilaism. He says this. He has a young lady named Sheila Larson. She's a young nurse. She describes her faith as Sheilaism. She says, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's called Sheilaism. Just my own little voice. He asked, well, what does it mean to follow Sheilaism? Well, you just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care of each other. Now, for some relative merits that are in there, that is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. We're not free to simply grab pieces and parts. The mission and the message of the New Testament is that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the resurrection is not consistent with a pluralism or a make-your-own-choose-your-own-adventure type of thing. It simply doesn't work that way. So Paul goes and he preaches here at Mars Hill. 
Let's see the essence of his message. A few years ago, I had a chance to go to Mars Hill and see what is going on here and see the place where Paul was able to preach. That's the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And as you can see, it's really not that spectacular. As you walk up onto Mars Hill, you can see over off in the distance the gigantic temple of Athena and the stadium and other things over there. And so I was able to lead a group there, and this is a place where the great ones that are known by first names are, like Socrates, Plato, Paul, and Alan. People who need no description and who need no last name. It's not Alan of Mobile, like Paul of Tarsus. It was really, uh, in all seriousness, it was an incredible opportunity as we had a group of students there and we were able to look at Acts 17 and to remember and to see the way that Paul preached the gospel there. And so this was the place where this debate took place. And so he's sort of on trial. What was his message? What was the message that he has? It's simply this, that he wanted them to know who God is. He was the creator and sustainer. He's the ruler He's the savior and the judge. Let's see how this breaks down. God is the creator and the sustainer. As his entry point, he grabs the idol to the unknown God. So there was an actual idol, sort of a catch-all. Hey, in case we missed one of the gods, there's an idol to this unknown God. And so Paul, this is brilliant. Remember, he had been accused of preaching unauthorized gods, he said, no, actually, I'm telling you about a God that you know is out there, you just don't know how to define him. And so that's what he does. That's how he works his way into this conversation. God is the creator and sustainer. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I want you to play out something in your mind. Complete this sentence, all right? Complete this sentence. If God did not create the world, then what? Blank. If God did not create, then what? I have a few answers. I have many answers, actually. I would say this. Morality isn't real. There's no basis for morality. There's no such thing, really, as free will, any sort of actual human freedom. Human value becomes subjective. You might end up where ethicist Peter Singer, Princeton ethicist, where he's argued that we should not practice what he calls speciesism, favoring humans over other species. How do you get there? Well, you eliminate the idea of God. Creation is really the perfect starting point for the biblical story, especially when you're talking to a group of people that don't necessarily know the Bible. And that's exactly where Paul starts. I love Nancy Piercy's quote on this. She says, beginning with sin instead of creation is like trying to read a book by opening it in the middle. You don't know the characters and can't make sense of the plot. So what would Paul want to say to this group of people who are examining him? Well, one, you need to know that God is the creator. You may have heard the old joke about the scientist who decide that they don't need God anymore. And so these scientists get together and say, hey, we figured a lot of things out. We can edit DNA now. We can clone humans. We can even fly through space. We can manipulate atoms. We don't really need God anymore. And so they set up a showdown with God. They elect one of the scientists to go tell God 
hey, we don't need you anymore, we've got this figured out. And God says, okay, well, here's what we're gonna do. We'll do a competition and we're gonna create, the, we're gonna create a human out of the dust just like I did originally. And the scientist says, okay, fair enough. And he reaches down and grabs a handful of dirt and God says, no, 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 get your own dirt. Like, and that's, that's really the idea that Paul is getting at here. Like you, there is nothing the idol temple, it can't contain God. The offerings that you would bring God are nothing because they already belong to him. It's all his. Sort of like when you're younger and your kids buy you a birthday gift. Like, well, thank you. And it means, it means a lot. Thank you, guys. It, it means, it's very, it's very meaningful, but at the same time, you are the source of your own gift, right? Like, that's what's going on. And so when you bring, in the Old Testament, when they brought a sacrifice to God, it's not as if they increase God's net worth through this. And it's not as if we give life and energy to the cosmos through sacrifice. Some people thought that way. A few years ago, I had a chance to go to Indonesia, and over in the Bali side, uh, it's, uh, it's, heavily, um, it's heavily Buddhist. And so every morning you would walk out, and there's these perhaps some of you have seen this, there's these little plates of food that they would leave out. And what was, they, they were offerings, and so they would, you know, little crackers and rice and, and different things that they would leave. Well, it was thought that the animals that would come through, the raccoons or whatever else, uh, you know, would come through and eat that. It was a way of feeding the energy, feeding energy back into the system. And so you're, you're contributing somehow through your gift. And Paul is saying, no, that's not at all what's going on. You see, God is, he's the creator, he sustains, there's nothing you can give him. If he was hungry, he wouldn't tell you, that's what Psalm says, there is nothing you can bring. And that's where this phrase comes from that he quotes in just a moment, in him we live and move and have our being. So he is the creator and he is the sustainer. What else? He's also the ruler. He's the ruler. Look at verse 26. This is a profound point that Paul is making. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's the ruler. As opposed to the Stoic philosophers who took sort of a fatalistic, well, whatever happens, happens. It says, no, actually, God, in a very intentional way, created humans, and he actually draws the lines of where they live. By the way, it's fairly obvious that Paul understands Genesis and creation in a very literal way, saying that all of humanity came from this one person. He understands Genesis in that way. It's not a watchmaker sort of thing. We've heard that. People like a deist, theist, talk about, well, God created everything, and it's sort of like the watchmaker who created it, spun it up, wound it, puts it on the shelf, and watches it. It's like, no, actually, God's active, in his creation. Isaiah 40, verse 15. I love this verse. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. The nations are like just a drop from the bucket. The nation of Russia is like a drop from a bucket. The People's Republic of China, drop from a bucket. The United States of America, drop from a bucket. We think these are so powerful and big. 
No, not in God's economy. Drop from a bucket. That's it. So God is the ruler. We also see that he is the savior and the judge. He's the savior and the judge. It's interesting what he does here in verse 28. He quotes their own poets. So he shows an awareness of what they're reading and what they're thinking through. And he uses that as an entry point not to affirm their error, but to show them their need for Christ and to complete their worldview. He doesn't simply say, I'm glad you're a person of faith. He says, you need to understand who God actually is. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And he goes on to describe what it means to be his offspring. It's hard to overstate some of the incredible skill that we saw, that we see over in Athens. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is like the gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or imagination of man. You see, imagination and skill can produce art, but it cannot produce God. That's the issue. If you've had the chance to walk around over in Athens or somewhere like that, it's really incredible what they've built, isn't it? Just a few pictures, images. And just to give you an insight into my mind, as I was walking around this place, I couldn't help but think, did they build all this with Roman numerals? Like, were they sitting down crunching Roman numerals? I can't even figure out what Super Bowl we're on. Because I'm like, can we just get past this Roman numeral thing? Like, do you subtract the X and add the I? What's the V? What's the L again? And I get so lost. I can't figure out what page of the forward I'm on when I pick up a new book. Um, So did they actually build all this with that? Like, that's pretty amazing. So it's phenomenal what they did. And so as you're walking around, there was a statue of Athena that's been lost to history, 40 feet tall, 2,000 pounds or more. It's been lost to history now, but perhaps they were thinking, this is the ultimate achievement, and perhaps even this is somehow divine. It's phenomenal. Let's jump to the end, and let's see the responses that Paul gets to this. Verse 32, there's four possible responses to a message like this and to the message that Paul preached. So when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined some men joined him and believed among those who were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Three possible responses. Some will mock. And this is still true today. This is the possible responses. And as we bring this to a conclusion, these are the three possible responses to the gospel in your own heart as well today. Some of you will mock this and think, well, that's silly. That's quaint. These Christians, they're so funny. They still believe all of that stuff. Some will mock. Some might be curious. They might say, huh, I've never thought about that. Maybe there is some, some form of an intellectual foundation for Christianity after all. Those who reject Christianity as anti-intellectual, they just haven't read enough for the right people. You might disagree with it but it's really unfair to say nobody's thought through this stuff. They really have. So there's rejection, maybe curiosity. There's some who, of course, believe this message and begin to follow as we see. 
And then the last one we don't see in the text, but I added this because I think it is endemic in our culture today. Apathy. Just don't care. Eh, whatever. That's nice. What's for lunch? Kyle Bashir's friend wrote a book a few years ago called Apathyism. He's playing off of the theism title, Apathyism. He said this, the fruitlessness of so many spiritual conversations I'd had there finally made sense. It wasn't that people were hostile to the gospel, which is what I had assumed. It was that even that they were, they were either too busy to be bothered with conversations about Jesus or they simply just didn't care. They're just too busy to stop and think. It's one of the reasons I love Easter Sunday. You got a few days off, everything's different. You got friends in town, family perhaps, you're going over to somebody's house for lunch or dinner. It's a unique time and it gives us a moment to pause, to stop the busyness and to think, do I really believe this? Has this message filtered its way into my heart? Has it changed the direction of my life like it did the early apostles? Have we rejected it? Are we simply curious? Have we accepted it? Or do we just not care to even have the conversation? I challenge you with that today. The resurrection, it's integral to the Christian story. If we lose the resurrection, we lose the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for an opportunity to be together today and to be with a group of people who believe these things to be true. Lord, as we saw these different responses to the preaching of the resurrection so many years ago, and as Paul said, this message is assured by the resurrection. The resurrection was historically undeniable, especially in the first century. It happened. And so people had to reckon with that reality. And Lord, just as we saw, you completely redirected the life of Paul once he came to understand and know the resurrection of Jesus, I pray that the same would happen with this group here today. Maybe there's some here and they're curious. They've been listening in for a while. Lord, I pray that today you would convince them of the truth of the gospel. You would show them their need for a savior and that they would turn and have a complete life change and about face just like these early Christians did. Lord, I pray for our church family as we continue to enjoy some time together to enjoy a day to be able to celebrate what you've done. We pray that you would encourage us, build our faith as we continue to study your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen.